0: As you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, we're going to continue our sequential exposition of Acts. We've been all the way through Luke, and now we are partway through Acts. Pray with me before we look at the text. Triune God. We are gathered here this morning because we trust in you and not in ourselves. We're gathered here because we know that everything is from you and for you. We're here because we need to slow down and contemplate our relationship with you. Contemplate our walk, contemplate the purpose for our existence, contemplate the relationships that you have given into our care. And so, God, we ask that during these moments of study, we would be reflective, prepared to confront and confess sin in our lives, prepared to examine our character, our convictions, our compassion. Lord, we pray that you will give us better understanding of yourself so that our walk with you, our relationship with you will be closer. Thank you for your truth this morning. We pray that by your spirit you will take this truth and make us more like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Last week in God's word, we emphasized from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 26, that God is in the business of planting and growing faithful churches to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and advance his kingdom. In describing the Christ-centered church at Antioch in particular, we saw that God establishes and builds up faithful churches that are Christ-centered in their proclamation, Christ-centered by by using Christ-centered people and through Christ-centered partnerships. Today we look further into the way that Christ-centered Christ-centered individuals and churches cooperate with one another and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though correction was needed for the churches, even though correction is needed for us, even though training is required, and none of these things happens among us without difficulty, the early church was marked by a spirit of submission to Jesus as Lord, and a spirit of cooperation with his people. So as we apply it to ourselves this morning, we're going to see that Christ-centered lives are marked by this spirit of submission to Jesus as Lord, and this spirit of cooperation with God's work through his people. I might say it like this. We will know that our lives are Christ-centered when we're marked by a spirit of submission to Christ. And when we're marked by a spirit of cooperation with God's work through Christ's people. As we turn to Acts chapter 11 and verse 27, I want us to look at the details of this text as well as the broader context. As we do, it becomes increasingly clear that in the early church, there is a spirit of submission to Jesus as Lord, which gives individuals and groups a proper perspective of their role. And that same Spirit works itself out in cooperation with God's people, a cooperation which is made possible when we are mutually submissive to the Lord Jesus. Read with me beginning at Acts chapter 11, verse 27, and we're going to go through 12, 5. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now chapter 12, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. How did the early church handle rapid expansion? How did they handle this unique period of transition? And how did they handle frequent and difficult trial? What I aim to show you this morning from our text is that in each area they cooperated with one another in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, in expansion, in transition, in trial. See first then that a spirit of submission to the, Lord, the Lordship of Jesus and of cooperation with his people is what helped the early church to be unified even in rapid expansion. Now, a lot of this is going to come, this conversation about expansion and even transition is in these verses and also in the broader context that we've been looking at for some weeks and will continue to look at. From the earliest days of Pentecost, the number of disciples submitting to Jesus was increasing rapidly. Remember that at Pentecost, 3,000 were added to their number. And, and in Jerusalem, mostly Jewish, Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but the numbers were increasing rapidly. For some time, as I said, it was mostly Jews coming to saving faith, but then because of persecution, the gospel advanced among the Gentiles because the believers we've seen who Uh, were scattered from the persecution, witnessed to more and more people as they were dispersed out from Jerusalem. Nowhere was this effective progress more evident than at Antioch. That's what we just saw in verses 19 to 26, that some of the believers, although most who were scattered were preaching only to Jews, some proclaimed Christ also to the Greeks. And then in Antioch, the church Grew rapidly among the Gentiles. And so the church in Jerusalem heard of it. They sent Barnabas to, to uh, consolidate the church and to encourage the church and grow the church in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we see, these churches are cooperating together. And so that's what we saw in verses 19 to 26. In this expansion of the Christian community, we observe submission to Jesus and we observed cooperation with his people in two particular relationship dynamics, and we touched on these some this week, and I'm going to draw them out briefly for you again. We see first in the the Jerusalem church's relationship to the Antioch church, and then also in Barnabas' relationship to Saul. Now, in the two groups of churches, the Jerusalem church's relationship to the Antioch church, in submission to the lordship of Jesus, remember that Peter had preached that he is Lord of all, in chapter 10, verse 36, the Jerusalem church didn't selfishly cling to keeping Jesus all to themselves. In fact, wrong attitudes have already begun to be corrected. Do you remember? You look back at chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, Peter had learned from this example of, Peter had learned from the vision that he received from the Lord that he ought not to call Anything common that the Lord has made clean, remember? And so then he actually went to Cornelius, and Cornelius' household received the same spirit as all these Jewish believers have been receiving. And so it is, this, they're being brought into the same body of Christ. But then when, when Peter goes back to Jerusalem, he's complained at by the circumcision group, the Jews, that he was fellowshipping with Gentiles. But they, by the time Peter retells the story, at verse 18, we see they're accepting, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to spiritual life, to restoration to God. So instead of, of clinging selfishly to Jesus for, for only themselves, they cooperated with what God was doing and cooperated with the fledgling church in Antioch. They made sure the Antioch church was submitting to Jesus in sending Barnabas as their envoy, Barnabas as their ambassador. So also, we see this spirit of submission and cooperation in this expansion period with Barnabas' relationship to Saul. In a spirit of submission to Jesus and cooperation with God's people, Barnabas brought Saul in as his partner in Antioch. The reason for cooperation instead of competition is that these individuals in churches have become Christ-centered instead of self-centered. Of course, as this relationship continues, as the relationships even between churches continue, we said this last week that cooperation doesn't mean there isn't any need for correction. Remember that Paul, on behalf of the Antioch church, will address the favoritism among Jewish believers that's still taking place in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem church. So cooperation doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't need for correction. There's always need for correction. Cooperation doesn't mean there will never be division. The church will at times have to separate from those who are preaching false gospels. And the church will at times need to separate out those who are living in unrepentant sin through the process of church discipline. And the goal of church discipline is is repentance and restoration to true fellowship with God and the church. And there will be times even, we see it in the relationship with Barnabas and Saul, There will be times when there is division over agreeing to disagree. In ways that impact the day-to-day practice of ministry, Paul and Barnabas will have a disagreement over John Mark, and they will have to agree to disagree. But those things are exceptions, not the rule. We often, in our own lives, let ambition create division, clinging to something for ourselves, instead of cooperating with Christ's church in submission to Jesus as Lord. With this situation with Barnabas and Saul, they're teaching side by side, and after some time, a year of the two teaching side by side, we also hear of prophets coming to Antioch from Jerusalem. So let's go back to the Jerusalem church's relationship to the Antioch church. The text says that prophets come down because that's coming down in elevation from Jerusalem to Antioch, even though it's north. But this makes us have to consider the role of prophets in the New Testament, especially in this time period. It requires some explanation. The job of a prophet in any age The job of a prophet is to declare what God has said. The New Testament prophets are are closely tied to the ministry of the apostles, which means that their primary task in the New Testament period was to teach, to reinforce through teaching and explanation what the apostles were declaring about Christ and on behalf of Christ. So they're closely tied to the ministry of the apostles. It also seems that on rare occasion, and with some some prophets particularly gifted in this way, like Agabus, who's mentioned here, that the prophets were sometimes given information from the Spirit to predict specific things for the church. In this case, it is the, the coming famine, which the author Luke notes did take place under the rule of the emperor Claudius. Next time that we hear of Agabus doing something like this. It's in Acts chapter 21, verses 10 to 12, and Agabus predicts the impending arrest and imprisonment awaiting Paul when he travels to Jerusalem. So there are times where there is prediction, but that prediction is very specific for a very specific need. And you probably should think of any kind of prophecy like this that happens to be foreseeing or foretelling, recall that if a prophet ever spoke something that were untrue, what would, what would be the case about him? He's a false prophet and he would need to be stoned to be put to death. So it will take place. And we notice from these believers in Antioch, they presume that this famine in the, in the known world will take place exactly as he has said. So, as we continue to think about the gift of prophecy in the New Testament and for our own day, I will explain it like this that if the gift of prophecy persists today, in our day, it would be in the sense of teaching God's truth. But if that's the case, if prophecy is used in the sense of those who proclaim what God has said, what God has declared, what He has given us with His completed Word in the Old Testament and the New, if that's the case, then how is prop being a prophet different from being an evangelist or a pastor or teacher? Accordingly, many of us would argue that apostles and prophets in this earliest sense are no longer operative offices today. Are we Christ's sent ones, which is what apostles means? Yes, lowercase apostles. Are we his sent ones? Are we proclaimers of his truth? Are we prophets in that sense? Sure. But are we those who built the foundational truth for the church upon the foundation of Christ, who is himself the cornerstone? No, we're not the apostles and the prophets in that sense. If you would like to discuss this with me further, I'd be happy to look with you at Paul's letter to the Ephesians and trace Paul's explanation of this dynamic, beginning in Ephesians chapter two, verses nineteen to twenty-one, and then connect it to Ephesians three five, and Ephesians four eleven through sixteen. And if you want to look at it some on your own, in the notes in the transcript for this message, which you can access on our website, I'll include a link to a, a, a brief explanation of Ephesians two twenty. Uh, that is helpful and clear explanation from biblehub.com. Again, if you go to our website, you can find a link to that. I also invite you uh, to uh, talk with me about it more later if you'd like to. That's Ephesians 2, 19 to 20, Ephesians 3, 5, and Ephesians 4, through 16. Now, this discussion leads well into our next point for this morning, talking about Uh, prophets in this transitional period, because a spirit of of submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ and of cooperation with his people helps the church thrive even in transition. Submission to the lordship of Jesus means submission to the leadership structures of God's own design. These leaders in the church are the under-shepherds to the great shepherd. So during this transitional period, we see submission and cooperation playing out, especially in two key relationships. In the Antioch churches, first of all, the Antioch church's relationship to the Jerusalem church through Barnabas, and then the apostles' relationship to the local churches. Let's look first at the Antioch churches, the way they're relating to the Jerusalem church in these earliest days. The Antioch church didn't try to escape the apostolic authority or shun the mature leadership of Barnabas. He was sent by the leadership in Jerusalem and they didn't try to squirm out from under that. They needed Barnabas' help. Instead, they would follow the pattern of God's instruction for churches. The thing I want to emphasize for your application is that I'm convinced that Barnabas's spirit was a great help to this effort. Servant leaders in our homes, in the workplace, in the church, and in any role where we have authority over others, it is not our place to make others our servants. Rather, our role is to model the self-sacrifice of Jesus who did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We're not, our, your, your position of authority as a Christian is not to make servants out of other people. Your job is to be the chief servant of all the people that God gives into your care. So we make it our aim to pursue the highest good of others to the glory of God. And we see this dynamic in the the Antioch church's relationship to the Jerusalem church through Barnabas. And then we also see it in the apostles' relationship to local churches. This is key in this transitional period uh, for the local churches, and we see it begin to play out here, even in Acts The apostles didn't try to cling to power in the Jerusalem church. They understood that they couldn't be around forever. Their task was to establish a foundation upon which the church could continue in maturity and promoting Christ on into the future. So there's a a transition in progress where continually over time, there's a shift from the apostolic leadership to the elder-led local church leadership. Did you notice in the language that when Barnabas and Saul are sent back with the gift, they take it back to whom? The elders in Jerusalem. So there is a process of transition beginning here, and then we see it start to play out in chapter 12, or actually a bit of explanation as to why this happens, that the Apostles will not be the permanent leaders of the local church. Chapter 12 explains how the transition comes about. The apostles become targets who can't safely remain in a given community. Many of them would soon be martyred. And that's what happens with the Apostle James. More on that in just a minute. Don't confuse the Apostle James and Elder James. These are two different people. So the, the text will later explain in chapter 12 that there is another James, Elder James. Elder James is the half-brother of Jesus, who evidently becomes the lead elder in Jerusalem. So we see this dynamic of the transition period. This also begins to, to, to reflect the transition of church leadership from apostles to apostles and prophets to evangelists and pastor teachers, again we trace that from Paul's teaching in Ephesians 2, 3, and 4. Okay, so we've been, we've been noticing the submission and cooperation in expansion and submission and cooperation in the context of this tri- in, in the transitional period. Now, even more closely in the details of the text, we see submission and cooperation in trial. There are two major trials in our text. The first is, is a coming famine, and the second is... Is the persecution that has ratcheted up to new levels where even the apostles are beginning to face martyrdom? But there's submission to the Lordship of Jesus and cooperation with His people that kept the church focused and moving forward, even in frequent and severe trial. Even in these trials, we observe Christian submission to the Lord Jesus playing out in cooperation with his people. We see this in two, in the two responses to trial. The first response is is the Antioch Church's response to the famine, and then we'll see the Jerusalem church's response to persecution. Well, in response to the famine, Agabus foresaw that this was going to take place and it was going to be intense and its effects would be widespread. We can understand this in our current global economy, that famines and wars impact more than just the immediate vicinity. They have repercussions on all who might be trade partners even. We, we, you've heard in the news that the impact of the war in Ukraine has, has an effect on the global economy, has especially a greater impact on the more poor nations, Right? So it would have been in Rome at this time as well that there there was a lot of international trade taking place, and and maybe you remember me saying that Antioch even would have been a a central hub for this. So the famine was expected to be especially difficult for the less affluent church communities in the region of Judea, so the, the more affluent fledgling church in Antioch decided to send help to the churches in Judea, to the church community there. Probably what we recognize as the most unique part about this gift is that they send aid before the famine ever strikes. They were told that it was going to happen, and they believed it was going to happen. And so they sent aid. Barnabas and, and Paul represent, then, the Antioch church with this assistance for the churches in Judea. Consider the ways again, as we're making application to our own lives, consider the ways in which generous and consistent giving can and does impact gospel advance in the community and in missions to the ends of the earth. Your finances make it possible for a couple of staff members here at Branson Bible Church to invest themselves full-time in shepherding and care and in preaching and teaching. Your finance, your generous giving makes it possible for the likes of uh, Brady and Candy Farr to do ministry in South Africa, and for others to do ministry in Brazil, and for still others to do ministry in Asia. Your finances make that possible. Your finances make it possible for the church to be able to help people who walk into the church seeking assistance. Your giving makes it possible for the church to help people in our own church family when they come to us and they have an abnormal, significant need in their lives. And on and on and on the list could go from generous giving. And finances aren't the only way that we can be generous. We can be generous, and you, you know this, but you kind of need to take a minute to think about it. You can be generous with your attention. With your focus, with listening well, with caring about others, with your thoughtfulness. We can be generous with our energy and our time and our abilities to serve and so on. What makes us generous with all that we have? All that we have belongs to Christ. We are His people. We are Christ-centered. Whatever way our very selves and all our stuff, whatever way our whole selves and all our stuff is used ought to be aimed at submission to Christ. Is that how you make decisions about how you steward, how you manage your treasure? Is that how you make decisions about how you manage your time? Is that how you make decisions and plan for how you're going to steward your abilities? Young people, are you you thinking about that as you determine how you want to be further educated and where you want to go and and who you ought to marry? Is your primary concern about being Christ-centered You have a very brief life to live, and then comes eternity. Will you steward this gift of life that you have been given and make it Christ centered? You can ask yourself Will this investment that I'm considering help me be more submissive to Christ and a more cooperative servant? With his people. So not only do we see this in the Antioch Church's response to famine, but we also see it in the Jerusalem church's response to persecution. When they're confronted by opposition, the church had courage. But Jesus' disciples didn't seek confrontation. When possible, they avoided it. We'll see soon that when Peter is freed from, from prison, he he leaves the region. But persecution is genuinely not always avoidable. That's what makes it persecution. (laughs) So during this period in Jerusalem, they were facing persecution and even martyrdom. And now of prominent leaders, no less. The apostle James was beheaded by Herod Agrippa I. Agrippa was a, a, a grandson of Herod the Great and Agrippa was raised in Rome, so, so when some of his childhood buddies became emperors, such as Gaius Caligula, Caligula granted that Agrippa be the first Jewish king since the time of his grandfather. As evidence of how much authority Agrippa had, even though he was a Roman puppet, he obviously had power to put James to death by the sword, probably under false accusation of leading people to, to worship false gods. And so he took off his head. And this, this person we're talking about was the Apostle James, the brother of John, one of the two sons of Zebedee, whom Jesus had dubbed the sons of thunder. Agrippa knew that keeping his favor with Rome would mean keeping his favor with the Jews because Rome frequently removed leaders who proved that they only instigated the people if they were over. So he had to keep the Jews happy in order to keep Rome happy. And so when killing the, the Apostle James pleased the Jews, Agrippa becomes even more emboldened and he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And the presumption here really is that Peter's trial would end the same way in death. Agrippa's going to wait until after the week-long Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, but it sounds, seems like his plan is to put Peter to death, and we'll see next what happens? And next week, we'll talk about the fact that we are always safe in God's hands. Peter is safe in God's hands. James is safe in God's hands. So the church responded in our text with the, with the best thing they could do. Hold on, just listen to me one more time. The church responded with the best thing thing that they could do. What did they do in chapter 12, verse 5b? Somebody answer. They prayed together. That's the best thing that they could do. Why is that the best thing that they could do? Who is providentially in control of everything? God is. That's not just what you say you believe. It's actually what you believe. They prayed This is proof of their submission to and dependence on God. Proof of your dependence and submission on God is your prayer. It proves that you know I need you. It proves that you know God all of this is up to you and all of this is for you. Glorify yourself. They trusted in the power and in the will of God and they did it together. We're unified when we cooperate in prayer, and we submit to God in prayer, and we even grow in maturity when we pray together. When a few of us were praying this morning before the service started, if you ever want to join us, you're welcome to. If you you happen to get here at nine o'clock, some of us pray down in that old choir practice room, the old cubby room. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll find us. When we were praying down there, I noticed that the dad of the boys was reflecting in his own prayer on the way that you hear the maturity and the growth of God's children when we pray together. And we grow together when we pray together. And through prayer, we're identifying the real threat. The real threat is unbelief, rejection of Jesus as Lord, The greatest threat is not that somebody's body will suffer loss, but that said body will give out without the soul submitting to Jesus as Lord. That's the greatest threat, rejection of Jesus Christ. So the church submitting to Christ prays with one another and for one another and for God's will to be done in our protection and in our proclamation. I want to conclude this morning by making sure that we're we're on board both individually and corporately with these attitudes and behaviors of the true Christian spirit. Ask yourself, am I marked by a spirit of submission to Christ and of cooperation with his people? Or do I tend to be independent and headstrong? Headstrong meaning self-willed and obstinate. The very positive element of political freedom in Western culture has led to the confusion and its consequences of thinking that individuality, the individual's independence, is the highest aim, the highest good. The reason I bring it up isn't to clamor about our culture, but to warn us that this same spirit has crept into the so called church and it creeps into our own lives. Not only is it illogical to forget that political freedom is based on mutual cooperation, and it, not only is it illogical to not remember that countries become independent in order to formulate their own collective government, but more importantly, a spirit of independence is unbiblical and unhealthy. You're not independent. You belong to Christ and you belong to his church. His design is for us, or his design for us is collective, not independent. And being self-willed and obstinate, being headstrong, is in a word, sin. We try to excuse ourselves in all sorts of ways by blaming our demeanor or our personality or our upbringing or whatever. But did Jesus say, well, you were born in sin, so it's okay, I'll just leave you there. No, he died for our sin and rose again so that we would be forgiven and restored to God and walk in newness of life. Christians, are we marked by a humble spirit of submission and cooperation? Jesus is Lord, and we work together in our submission to him and our purpose to make him known. So lastly, I just thought I'd remind us, church, we make it our aim to call others to submit to Jesus and to cooperate with his work in the world. We're telling people what Paul says in Romans ten nine that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you are saved for a purpose. Remember Acts or Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? And the, my emphasis for you is actually verse 10. Verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast about their own merit. It is all God's grace that we even respond in faith. Look at verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him beforehand that we should walk in them. And these good works are something that is not merely individual, but it's work that is done co- collectively in cooperation with the body of Christ. I was thinking this week, because I'm sort of preaching to the choir, right? Here you are. I was thinking this week about how some in our own church family have, have family members that we pray for often, they're, whether they're biological family members or otherwise, who, who say they're Christians but who are not participating in the life of a local church. The way it struck me this time was not only that that will be a struggle for them about their own assurance of whether or not they're truly Christians, about whether or not their obedience is, is uh, being manifest. You can't be the church without the church. But then too, I was simply struck with gratitude, with the realization, because I've become so intimately connected with God's work through his body of believers, I literally can't imagine the Christian life without you. I can't imagine it. If I weren't the pastor, I can't imagine not wanting to see you over and over again and serve the Lord together. I can't imagine it. You know that feeling you have. I know not all of you are all old enough like me to be married and have children and those sorts of things, but you know, this thing happens to you where, where you've now been married, and it's hard to remember being single. You have children, and it's hard to remember not having children. It's so, and so on, some experience has happened in your life, it's hard to remember not having been like that before. It's hard to imagine, once you've come to understand the connection with the body of Christ in submission to Jesus as Lord, it is hard for you to fathom not living life like that. And that's exactly how it should be for us. And we're encouraged and grateful that by God's own design, we get to live Christ-centered lives marked by a spirit of submission to Jesus as Lord and of cooperation with God's work through his people. Let's pray and the praise team will come again for a closing song. Father, we do give you all the credit for creating everything for yourself. We give you all the credit for our own existence, and we particularly give you all the credit for the spiritual life that we have. It's not because of us, but because of you. But we desire to live lives of submission. We desire to live lives of the kind of character that follows the example of our perfect Father. We, we want to look like our Lord Jesus Christ, And we want to make you known. We thank you for the privilege of being a part of of not only a local church, but being a part of the church. All those whom you are gathering to yourself and making a people for your own possession. Who will praise your name both now and forever. Thank you for letting us be a part of that by your grace and for your glory. Amen.